Hello and welcome to Funny Business, a podcast of free thinkers. I'm Robbie Hicks. Why are you laughing? Because you're funny sometimes. I am funny all the time. You're Lachlan Bradford and and today on the episode we've got... Who do we have? The big bad David Andrew. (laughs) A little bit of a joint intro there, I like it. Did you know he's the founder and managing director of Naked Life Spirits, the No Nasties Project and Naked Life Beverages. And I'm so glad that when he came to this chat, he didn't have all the awards he's been winning hanging on the wall because it would have made me feel a bit bad about myself. But seriously, this was such a real chat. We've had a couple of bangers the last few weeks of people who are in the shit, building things, making things happen, who I feel like this is an episode of someone who if you want to learn about like persistence and resilience and like getting out there and doing the things that no one else wants to do, and then people look and go, oh, you just cruised into success. You know, like, yeah. he's made this shit happen. I'll tell you one thing, though. Big David Andrew, if he could accept our connection request on LinkedIn, that'd be much appreciated. We're not really officially friends until you accept that one, mate. So uh, if you just want to log in before we uh, get the chat going and just accept that, that'd be fantastic. Enjoy the chat. Dave, thank you so much for jumping on the Funny Business Podcast. For those at home listening, tell us who are you and what do you do? Hey guys, I'm uh, Dave Andrew. I'm the founder of a couple of different Better For You food companies, um, Naked Life. Uh, we've got Naked Life Spirits, Naked Life Beverages and the No Nasties Project, um, all of which are just designed to try and create Better For You food and drinks for, for Australians, basically. I want to get into your diet, just straight up. The heart, the curly <laughs> question, straight up. Like, do you Are you scared of the sugar? Do you still go down the sugar pathway yourself and like well, you, really good question because I get asked that about both sugar and alcohol because we're the number one non-alcohol company in the country as well. Yes, I drink. Yes, I eat sugar. But I think that the key, but the funny thing is both of those businesses started when I was looking for choice. So I got out of the reason, the reason I started sugar-free soft drink um, business is I, I was trying to, I was a management consultant at the time, was working like massive projects, 14, 15 hour days. And I was trying to find ways to get sustained energy throughout the day. So I'd fully changed my diet to do things to try and get rid of insulin response just to try and have, a, a, yeah, because I was drinking four or five coffees a day and I don't need to drink that many coffees a day. So I'm like, you know what, it's a pretty fair indicator that something's not right. So let's see what else we can do. Played a lot of sport growing up, no, but it's inputs, processes and outputs. So I'm like, fuck, I've got to change something. And I, I had a look and the first thing I could change was sugar. So I got off that. And then realised that this was back in 2015. There was barely anything around that was sort of that I could drink, and I always had an interest in that type of stuff. So I realised once once that project ended up, and I'd sort of I'd finished up in consulting and wanted to do my own thing. I was like, right, this is where it's going to be because there's nothing for me. And you know, fast forward to where we were before we launched our non-out business. I'd started drinking a heap of mid-strength beers because I, I wanted to still be out and still, you know, I love going to the rugby, I love having a few beers, but I just, you know, sometimes I didn't want to be written off the next day. So I started really drinking lots of mid-strength beers and realised that, you know, for the, there wasn't much for the female market out there. So I thought, oh, right, time to pivot and head our uh, and launch a non-alc space there. So I think for me, it's always followed um, what I've been interested in, but at the same time, like, it's never been about being militant about it. So, you know, I, I like giving choice. Well, like everything we do is about giving choice back. So it's sort of, for me, it's not about, you know, you shouldn't drink alcohol or you shouldn't have sugar. It's just like, eh, if you don't want to, here's a better option for it. And we we allow you to transition or we give you the options to not feel like you're losing out and still getting the best of both worlds. So, yeah, like I sort of, you know, we always have a bit of a laugh. We had our team day the other day. And you know, lots of sort of non-out beers and non-out. Yeah, you know, there was lots of lots of our lots of non-out. We forgot to have any of our own product in there, and so everyone's just like, 
where's all our product? <laughs> oh, shit, we've got to even put our, do a bathtub with our own gear and sort of quickly fix that up. And But, yeah, that's sort of, for me, my diet, I try and keep it pretty, I try and keep it um, clean, not uh, clean's the wrong word. I live in that intersection of where I can easily make the easy changes I do, but I don't stress too much about it. I you know, I try and keep more on the sleep side of things, which I struggle with to, you know, to try and focus more on that because the, the diet stuff, you know, I'm 80% now, I reckon. Do you think part of this bigger change, like from what consumers want, like you mentioned choice, is it just people are becoming more conscious of health? I think it's like writing that, you mentioned better for you products. Like, is it about, like substitutes, finding what you're good at. Like me and Lark, we we worked with one of our beer for the last few years, so definitely understand that like the desire for people to be able to go out to parties and socialize and not feel like I've been off the piss now for yeah, you're not drinking probably the last like six and seven why? weeks because you just want to be responsible, you want to be a present dad, you want to be there. Well, a little bit, and I just don't want to feel shit. It's yeah. like what you mentioned before, trying to find those like long hours now when I'm getting less sleep, I'm already foggy in the morning. I've got heaps of work I need to do every day or I feel behind, like we were mentioning off air. If I've got a hangover on top of that, I'm fucked. That's it's, how I see it. Yeah. Look, I reckon it's, I reckon there's this old saying, and this might be completely bastardized, but there was an old Abraham, we'll call it an old Abraham Lincoln saying, but it's like, you know, if you had an hour to chop down the tree, spend, spend 45 minutes sharpening the axe. And I just, I think these types of dietary things or sleep hacks or anything like that, I think it's just being smart. I think it's just doing the things that work well for you and putting a bit of time up front to figure out how you can be without trying to sound like a, a, one of those cheesy life coaches to try and be the best person you can be. Cause I think there's some small changes you can make that have big impacts. And I think if you're not looking for those or doing those, I think you're just being a bit lazy in, in my personal opinion. I think you can spend a bit of time figuring out what works for you. And, you know, there's diminishing returns after a heap of those, but there's, there's a heap of stuff that that does work well. And so if that works then great. Yeah, and it's not just like fitting into like a cookie cutter diet. Like you see people just go yo-yo and they see all this different stuff and they're like, I'll try that one. That one didn't work or that one, that one didn't work. And like you were saying, it's like customize it to what you already do and what you're already eating and then just making them decisions, yeah? I think it's also the concept of going on a diet or changing your diet is it's temporal. It's temporal from the beginning so you're bound to fail. Like I see all these things as a lifestyle shift, not a diet so that makes sense because it's more there's more permanence to it there's a permanence to the fact that i'm always trying to find a better way to eat to make myself feel better or this or that so it's sort of shifting from thing to thing that's working for me not on and off not like cool i'm cutting everything out for six months and then i'm going to be like a pig for the next six months and it's just like that, that that stuff doesn't work and once again i think that's like it's not that's not trending in the right direction that's just you know Anyway, it's yo-yoing, right? Whereas if you're always just trying to be a bit better and, and shifting around and, and just being curious about how I can be better. And, and you know what? It's, it can even be as curious as like, cool, well, if I want to go out longer and drink more, how do I be less hungover the next day? Great. I'll figure that out because I get the best of both worlds. It, it's, it's about figuring out how you get the most out of each situation, I think, as opposed to how do I take something away from myself. Let take us back. How did you get into the world of startups and business in the first place? Like, take us back before the businesses started. Like, where yeah. did your interest come from? Jeez, I um, I've always been interested in, in in business. I think, like, I sort of, you know, didn't have a very business minded family, but I 
still remember when when I was in year nine, I went with a mate of mine. We took his dad's Campbell's cash and carry card to go buy killer pythons from the from Campbell's cash and carry and sold them for 20 cents from our locker because the tuck shop was selling them for 30 cents. And so we undercut the tuck shop now back in like year eight or year nine at school. And it just sort of, I've always been interested in that type of stuff. Um, but I think like, you know, I went through uni, did a science degree, but even when I was sort of, you know, went and worked bars, but also realised I could sort of have a little business doing um clearing yards had a lot of mates who were real estate agents so i sort of called, bought a trailer and some other bits and pieces and went and won some work off them and got my mates who were sort of you know got my mates to do it and i was paying the invoice taking a clip of the tickets i realized you could do these different pieces but you know it was when i kind of and i've always sort of tried to do these pieces but then you know stuffing around for a bit went overseas for a while had a bit of fun came back and thought oh, what am i going to do and didn't know what I was doing and wasn't ready to, in my head, I didn't know how to start a business. So I thought I'll go to a business degree. So I went and did that and ended up working as a consultant for Deloitte. So I went into the most, went from being quite free reigning to like, you know, wearing a suit every day. And and and, and what I found was interesting. Like, it was great fun, but it just wasn't me in any way, shape or form. And I learned a lot from it. And then I ended up working for, so whilst that was happening, I actually started um, an online tie, like men's tie and accessories business because I remember walking to my very first meeting and there was a young bloke who was with me wearing this god-awful tie. I'm like, what the hell is that, mate? It's like, well, I don't want to be just a suit. I want to make my mark. I'm like, yeah, but you look like an idiot. Like, you know, you're you're in the zone where you wear suits with clients who expect you to wear suits, like take that tie off. Like, But it, it started something in my head of like, what's, you know, people are wanting to feel a bit different. So I made all these ties that like, real rock star on the back but real plain on the front and so they could still have their air of you know uniqueness around them so i started that for a while had that while i was consulting for a couple of years and but it was never it was never something that i was going to fully throw myself into because my back was never against the wall i was always making money from i always had a wage coming in and i always had this thing on the side that made me feel like i was I remember at the time i felt so cool because i was a consultant i was an entrepreneur and all that crap and 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 that's more what I was after as opposed to really seeing if I could make it work. And so I did that a couple of times through my consulting career. I had another one, which I started with a mate called the Pantless Postman, which is first socks and underwear subscription service in Australia. And, you know, we, um, to launch that, we were like, we had like, like male strippers there. Yeah, <laughs> I, was yeah, like, yeah. I was like, what are they rocking up to our house? Oh, I'm buying. Yeah. You know, you're a handsome, yeah. you're a handsome man. Yeah. I'm going, look, can I still make that order? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny. Speaking of strippers, we actually, for, so for our launch, we didn't have any money to launch this socks and underwear subscription service. And we started the, a, the, a, a brand called Pantless for the underwear. And so, we thought, oh, let's. Well, we did what we called a pantless train ride. We ripped it off those in LA, where we got like about sixty or seventy people in Melbourne to, you know, to on the. We we got everyone on on the train, and at the same time, we had like people filming and stuff. They all just took their pants off all on the train with our underwear showing, and had it all filmed. And we all went all the way up to um, Flinders Street Station. I was actually on live on air with Carl, so we, with Carl on the morning show. So. We had everyone coming in, but we actually planted a few strippers in there as well because, you know, we thought, well, it's good to get some real good-looking people in there. And, and I was on live TV with Carl. I still remember at the time the um the, the lady who was interviewing us was like, remember, you're not allowed to talk about your brand, you're not allowed to talk about your brand. It's all about the train ride. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And I'm like, is this live? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, great. And uh, first thing Carl said is just like, oh, so what are you doing this for? Like, oh, well, we've just launched this brand called Pantless, pull my underwear up, and I felt it was like the reporter was like, oh, told you not to do that but that was our first sort of uh it was first time on tv and that was a bit of fun and it was a great way to launch the brand and yeah we hadn't sized the market properly so yeah 
we did everything we could, but there wasn't much money in it, but it was, it was a good learning. But once again, it comes back to the fact that whole view, like oh, since I was working at the time, uh, we didn't have that burning desire to properly make it work because we hadn't burnt out. I'm, I'm a real believer in like you got you make your best choices when your back's against the wall, like because that's when you, you you unlock parts of your brain and, and uh, that you otherwise wouldn't have unlocked, and you just find ways to make stuff happen when you're when you have no choice. Like it's that old I think it was a Spanish conquistador who Cortez who he put his you know and once again bastard probably bastardizing it or something but another another thing that's been just close to my heart is you know he sort of got over there with all of his boats got all the troops off and they all sort of walked up to go try and take on South America and he looked back and uh they said look back everyone and it basically it set all his boats on fire so you know it's like the only ways you guys are going to survive is winning and so yeah that and I look at that and I, I understand that because there'd been a heap of times where had I in, in my journey, had a chance to pull the ripcord, I probably would have because I just couldn't see a way out. But since you're just so deep in it and you just you sit there and go, well, there's only one way forward, right? And so you just find a way, you find the resourcefulness. And I think that's sort of when you've got a side hustle, you don't necessarily unlock that part, which I think is the key difference between people who make it and people who don't, is being able to unlock that part of just how am I going to make it work, not can I make it work? Like it's a subtle difference in that statement. So yeah, it's resilience. Sort of, yeah, like there's so much shit that comes up when you're building stuff, like and creating things, and you yeah. got other responsibility. You got team. If you're scaling out, you got so much responsibility. It's like you need to be resilient to to get through it. Like that's the number one thing, eh? Like that yeah. that mindset of like I love that. I think um, Matt Higgins just re- released a book called Burn Your Boats. I think it's called. Oh really? And it's yeah, the, yeah. and it's the same analogy you know what i mean exactly that and it was like that struck a chord with me because i remember i told you about it afterwards i'm like it has like for us this year has been like that hasn't it really it's like no we're going all in on this and we're not fucking stopping so good luck you know what i mean you find ways right you sit there and if you like if i look at you guys if you go all in on this when things get hard you're not going to sit there and think should i be doing podcasting your energy will be spent Instead of asking, should I, to be spent, how will I make this work? How, how do people monetize this overseas? What's the forefront of making this stuff work? How do I get content? Work? Like, that's where all the energy is spent, not questioning whether or not you should be doing it. And it's so easy to waste energy on should I as opposed to how do I. And I just reckon it's a big, like, that's why I just don't believe in side hustles at all. I love that. What about mentors? Did you ever have a mentor <clears throat> or throughout your career or even now or? Not, not until recently, I think. I, I sort of tried to hang around with people who had similar, you know, I was always attracted to people who were interested in business, but um, I think I was always in awe of people who ran their own business because even when I was doing all my side hustles, I still knew intrinsically that I wasn't all in. And I'd sit there and just go, you know, I'd take my hat off to anyone who would back themselves to make, to, to make themselves a wage, if you know what I mean. And so... Uh, you know, recently things are a bit different because the challenges that we face now are, are much easier solved. I think we've got about, you know, we, you know, we've got a decent staff and we've got about 15 people and it's sort of the challenge of scaling this now, uh, uh, it's easier to, in some ways it's easier to find people who've done that than beforehand where I was trying to find, I was trying to find the inertia to do my own thing. So I think that one came more internally than it did necessarily externally from the mentors. But like now, it's really important because you know missteps at this stage 
I think, are lazy because there's plenty. Of, you know, I now know lots of people have taken the journey that I'm on from this point to the next point. So to not take that advice, I think, is would just be would be lazy as opposed and because it's whether you take the advice or not, I think it's important you, you bring it in. Whereas earlier, like yes, I'd chat to people who have started their businesses, but it wasn't a huge amount. But all, the advice was the same. It was all the same. So like, well, just to a T. Well, just do it. You know, and, and that's yeah, that's the the difference between well, people early, don't want to hear that either. Pardon? People don't want to hear. People don't, people want, to don't hear. want to hear that's, that. That's the response because no. we've and heard the same thing a lot from uh, from doing the pod and hearing people what's going on, or people who come to us and ask, oh, "I want to start something. I'm looking to do this," and that's our feedback. Do it. Just do you it. Know, and, like, and come to wow. me when you got the problem of like what the actual thing, because then I can help you better. You know, like exactly. once you're doing it. Yeah. And and it's one of those things where you put people like. I remember I got asked to give a lecture at this sort of entrepreneur startup something. So I went in there, I was chatting away and to a T, all the people was like, yeah, look, I've got the job here and I want to sort of get this uh, this thing going and, you know, on the side so I can replace my wage. I'm like, that's, I'm like cool, that's all well and good. How much savings do you have and how long will it take you to replace your wage? Because quit now, or build up your savings, quit and start it because it's a faster way to do it. And to a T, no one in the room was like, no, oh, I want to, there's another way. And in the end, I'm just like, no, there's not. Like for me, if you're asking my advice, there's not. And they're like, no, well, you're wrong because blah, blah, blah. I'm like, and I end up walking out. I'm like, guys, you don't want to listen to what I've got to say. So I just got out of there. I'm like, cool. This is what I'm saying is, that you can't get one without the other. Like some lucky people can, but there's an element of, there's a book that I'd love to write called Crossing the Divide, which is the difference between like how, how there's a there's a gap that you need to, to, to jump from when you've got a nice safe salary to when you're then actually earning a wage in your own business. There's a gap there because if there wasn't, everyone would be doing it. And of course, there's a massive gap there. So you got to, and that's where the risk profile sits. At some stage, you just got to, you just got to take that risk that you might fall flat on your face but I went from earning a decent wage to earning about 40000 a year because I wanted to learn how to, you know, how to do a lot of this, what I'm doing now. And I did that for a few months. And I was willing just to eat shit for a while because I was the fastest way to accelerate forward later. And and I realised that a lot of people aren't willing, either willing to do that or, or willing to realise that that's what it actually takes and they want to keep talking about the fact that they're going to do something as opposed to the easiest way is to fucking do it, like... And I'm pretty brutal on that now. Oh, we're loving uh, it. Let's take us into Naked Life then of the initial stuff. Tell us about some of the big issues or speed bumps and stuff of getting that over that initial part before you're at the stage right now. Yeah, it's well, so I remember going out and starting. So the first thing I realized is starting a soft drink brand, it's just got and, and a sugar-free, naturally sweetened one. It just has to taste awesome because it's just I remember going out and and after I'd created the product, I'd hand bottled it. I was out sort of like running around, like trying to pitch it into all distributors around and sort of, you know, with my little labels, I'd print it out at Office Works and stuff like that. And uh, and I remember even though it tasted great, people would go to taste it. And even if they were someone who was off sugar already, they'd go to have a sip and their face would go and they were already assuming it was going to taste like shit. And they were already like before, and, and they were self-sabotaging themselves. And in my head, I remember sitting there thinking, what chance do I have with a mainstream with even someone who I know who likes me and likes zero sugar products is already assuming it's going to taste like shit. I'm like, this is, this is going to be quite a, a, an uphill battle to, to get in front of. So I realized so I went back and actually read, like, even though I thought it tasted good, I just made it taste even better. So I spent a lot of time getting that right. And then I just went around, I just literally like put my bottles in my bag and hustled around to all the different distributors I could find. Cause I re- like I wrote down, um, in March, March 2016, actually, yeah, I read that book, Think and Grow Rich, and when I was on holiday, when I was in between the different things, I realised it's like, you know what, that this burning desire that's probably not 
as strong as it needs to be, which is one of the things I talk about, um, to overcome all the challenges that's going to face me. So I wrote down, cool, I made a really clear thing. It's like this, and this was March 2016, I wrote down, like, by March 2021, so five years, I'm going to have a business worth X amount. I'm going to, to do, and it's going to be a business that helps launch better few products in, you know, nationally. I'm going to have some great partners. I'm going to be able to launch things into the supermarkets, you know, and to give this up I'm, and to, to achieve this, I'm going to sort of put off having a family. I'm going to dedicate everything into it. And I wrote all this stuff down. And I read it every day for the first couple of months. <laughs> you know, you, sort of, you just, you know, but it, it, I can still recite it from the top of my head. But I still remember we raised capital on the, on the, we closed a cap raise on 31st of March 2021, which actually retrospectively we hit the goal that I was wanting to hit. Now, I remember sitting there at the time thinking, there was one part of that that made a really that just made a big difference, which was it was a number of saying I want it to be worth X amount, which meant that I had to make all these decisions along the way that made me take more risk. Which you know, because I was just like, I remember at something cool. We need a bit. We need a different bottler, and I could have gone with a small person to bottle our drinks, which would have been easy, but they wouldn't have been the, had the scale to achieve the goal I wanted. Or I take more risk, hold off, and go for a much better person, much better bottler who could let us achieve that. But it was going to be really hard, take a lot of risk to pull that off. And because of what I had written down, I had to take the second option because the first option wouldn't get me to where I wanted to go. And I remember at the time thinking, like, I remember being pissed off. I'd written it down. So I'm just like, I didn't want, I wanted to take the easier option because it would have been easier, less risk. I'm like, who cares about five, four or five years' time? This is hard now. But I'm so glad I did that because that helped to, you know, those little things really helped to, to define the the decisions I made to help get us to where we are because I just had this sole focus of how do we get into the major supermarkets, how do we get into these major different areas. So all of my learning and energy went into into that. Like what's the pathway to do that? I had to build up, you know, with Naked Life, you know, we had to get a distributor in every single state. So we were somewhat national without being in the retailers. So I spent, you know, a good few months just flying around, use all the money I had flying around to pitch to every single distributor in every single state I could. And, you know, that was step one. And you know, and that's hard because they get hit on by so many different people. So I remember I had to sit in one of them. I sat in their reception for three days. So I just went in three days. They wouldn't take my call. And I was sitting there with my drinks and they'd walk past. And I'm like, oh, and like, no, no, we're not interested. And on the third day, they finally were just like, fuck, you're not, you're not going to leave, are you? I'm like, no. And then they're like, fuck, all right, fine. We'll, 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 we'll have a meeting then. It was great. And then ended up working with them. So all these little bits and pieces, I think, in the journey, which has sort of got us to where we are, is quite a... Uh, it's, it's actually quite interesting reflecting on all of this now. I don't know if I'd have the energy to do this, <laughs> do it well, again. It's, it's like the, it's like the big hairy audacious goals here. It's like yeah. you had that big high goal, and it's like if you're doing like you were saying, all the steps to achieve that, like you might as well aim for the moon. You know what I mean? What's it saying? I'm also hearing like it's also doing the shit that no one else wants to do because it's humbling. Sitting there and being ignored for three days is not an easy experience for someone who has a bit of an ego. Yeah. Not, not just yeah. anyway. Everyone has yeah. an ego. Like everyone's yeah. seen and go, I'm doing my best. I'm trying my best here. And I'm going to sit here and have you literally walk past me because you think I'm not worth your time. That's a humbling experience to keep moving forward. Well, I, I think it's, it's one of those ones that I had to, it, I knew I wasn't very good at that. To probably, my ego was probably not in check by that stage. But I remember, I'd like, that probably two years before that, I'd figured out that I really wasn't good with rejection. Like, I'd, I'd, from a sales point of view, I'd really struggle with asking those difficult questions. And so, I remember I to try and get part. And I remember I used to look at uh, like. I used to look at my mum who used to kick up a stink in the restaurant and crack the shits about the bill all the time and make a scene. I'd be so embarrassed. And maybe that's why I didn't ever want to do anything. But like, I remember seeing a thing, right? How do I break the back of this? And you know, those people who are in the street who they um they sell the uh 
they always hit you up for the charity things. They, they stop you and say, like, oh, can I ask you a question? It's like, I'm in my head, I remember thinking, they're thinking, geez, I wish I'd done that when I'd gotten out of uni because they don't give a shit now. They, 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 they've got a thick skin to rejection. So the way I then figured it out is for a full year, 12 months, whenever I bought anything, I asked for a discount and I forced myself to ask for a discount in retail because that was my way of getting used to being rejected. And so I'd force myself to ask a question. You'd go to the so I was like, can I have 10% off? And I'm like, oh, and, and it wasn't anyone could ask. I forced myself to ask a follow-up question as well. When they'd say no, I was like, why? Or oh, can you ask your manager? And I'd be sitting there cringing on the inside so hard, but I just sat there for cool, 12 months of doing that, that's all it's going to take. And you'd be surprised how many people say yes after the second follow-up question. 90% of them say no straight away. Once you ask the second follow-up question, you'd be surprised how many like retailers just go, ah, oh, okay, we'll give you 10% off. So that was the side learning. But nowadays, I'm just very comfortable after that one-year thing, being able to just be like, oh, well, you know, let's have a lower price it needs to be cheaper it was so painful though ah oh, i love this bro i love this what's your favorite part of business is it the strategy because I'm, I'm looking at your linkedin and you got lots of it's like the thinking of the game plan hey like all these different moves is that what you, you love when i used to play rugby i used to love broken play i used to absolutely love you know structured play i thought anyone can do I think the, the broken play was the stuff that I used to love because it was instinctive and it was both well, it was both instinctive as well as you needed the tools to be able to navigate it. And uh, and that's where I thought I had a um I had a, a leg up because I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the fastest, I wasn't the strongest. And so I was like, all right. So I think I've naturally gravitated a bit towards that in my business life because I just you know anytime people are bigger than us or or whatever or, or yeah, I just. I just don't play there. So I'll always play in areas where it's a, it's a new industry. It's, it's something that hasn't been created yet, not fully known because you don't have the big guys, you know, knocking down your door yet. And so I think there's an element of always making sure we're in a position where we're not taking people on head on. Um, I think that's just naturally, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. But then you, there's two there's two elements to it though. When you're playing that, and, and like to answer your question directly, yeah, you nailed it. I do love that stuff. And then and now I'll go back to explaining the, the why. And because you then have to play, you start it off, you get the momentum, and then you need to start learning yourself about how to play the next phase. So you're just like, shit, it's a kind of, and I always bring it back to sporting analogy. It's kind of like, shit, I made it through that gap and now I'm running, but I've no idea what to do from here now. And, it's, and, and that, that next phase forces you to learn. So then I get, I get quite structured about that and I just sort of, you know, I, I do enjoy the, the start off, but then I do the scale up phase at the moment. It's also great because you need to, you know, you need to figure out how you can be relevant and fit in with larger partners. So, how you know, to achieve what you want to achieve, how do you sort of, how do you look across the whole value chain to try and create, um, to create a win for the end customer? So, what like, I guess in my industry, what I mean by that is there's no room to have, um a manufacturer margin on a, like a wholesaler margin like us then a distributor, then the retailer, and then the customer. You can't have every step of that and have a product that's at the right price for the customer. So you need to figure out how do I partner along this to cut out some of the fat or what, what are the things we can do to give the end customer a really good outcome by sort of figuring out how to sort out the stuff in between. So we try and work really closely with our partners and be really creative in you know, you know, like an example would be like if, I, if I'm trying to get a new product made, the very first question I'll ask if I'm going into a manufacturer is, is instead of like, you know, we want to do this, it's, you know, I've got an idea what I want, but I'll say to them, 
which line do you do the most amount of, which production line do you do the most amount of volume on in which format and show me that because if I can make a product work in that format, we'll get the economies of scale to actually make it, I can work with you on what you do well instead of trying to, like people are always trying to be cool and do something new and all the other stuff, but in the end, it's going to be too expensive. So you need to sort of have an idea of where you're going and you need to really like sweat super hard every step of the value chain to make sure you get something that's at a price that works. It's like Scrabble. You got your letters on your thing and you're going, fuck, what can I make with this? <laughs> not, not what am I going to do? I need it like this. So it can be like that. No, I've only got yeah. these letters and that's what I can do today or I need to find something else. self-awareness, you reckon? Or, <laughs> I can, or I can put two back in and grab two more, you know? Exactly like Scrabble, but sometimes you got to get rid of all seven and start again, you know? <laughs> and so you've always got that in the back of your mind as well. And I think that's sort of a – I think someone was telling me the other day, yeah, they were trying to get some advice about the um, starting a cosmetic thing and they said it's it's you know it's going to cost them 50 grand to get their 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 product to market i'm like 50 grand how's it going to cost you 50 grand break that down for me now like oh well you know the mold is this for the lipstick and this and that wait, 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 hold on wait. you're getting a new mold for an untested product you're taking to market and you're paying money on that and they're like well yeah we need it because like do you know you need it or do you want it because they're two very different things like go get an off-the-shelf shelf mold spend money on the actual product itself and testing whether the market wants it and then after six months you realize it's going to work then get your new mold don't spend all that money right now because you can figure out in, in week one that maybe it's a shit product like and then you can you know you spend five grand and you've got 10 more attempts to win as opposed to spending it all at once and they, you know i think people get get very caught up in what they think is important not what's actually important when you're testing a new product in the market so what I reckon adds to that is like what perception of maybe like where the capital and stuff comes from these businesses and people want them doing their life's work on stuff. So it's like you're only going to get funding if you're doing your life's work and then they think about it like this and then they're too scared to make any decisions that might impact it or seeing rejection or failure or that's not the right thing versus, I don't know, starting a brand or a company with oh, we're going to change, try and tackle this problem or whatever it might be. What are your thoughts on that? So when you say your life, so, so you're saying that, you know, people get scared because unless they're doing what's 100% passionate to what they want to do, it's, they're not going to get the funding, it's not going to work. Is that what you mean or what were you? Or, or like the perception of like if that's the case and that's what they're trying to do and then if they don't do it that way or they're scared to make decisions because they don't want to be seen trying too many things, you know what I mean? Like Staying yeah. in your lane. Yeah, like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I reckon like... I think if when people start with an eye, when people enter a new area, I believe that's the starting point. It's not the end point. And so, you know, because I, I've got this view that if you try and go into a new space, so just say I tried to go into podcasts, since I've never done it before, I'd, I might have an idea that, oh, this is the idea I want. It's so different. Whereas I tell you guys, you go, well, there's 17 people doing that exact same thing and you're seven months behind and, 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 right? And so I say instead the way I'd go about getting into podcasts is I'd start one that I think is okay, not think too much about it, but once you're in it, you're just learning the ecosystem so quickly you start figuring out where the actual things are. So my first move in anything is generally just like a learning move and then, you know, you know we might not even look to make money in that first year of, of a product we do because, it, you know, it's like a... 
it's like placing a little bet that we can learn the industry for. So for me, you've got to place a few of those things, learn real fast, and then know whether you double down in that area or not, because you're never going to have the answers with your first product. You'll only have the answers once you've got that product in market. You're learning the feedback about that product. You're understanding where you went well, where you went wrong, what people are wanting, where the emerging trends are going inside that little sub-segment. Then your second product is the one that's generally going to be the belter. And I've seen that in our in, in my history as well, it's never been the first product that's the nailing one. It's the one after we've done a year's worth of thinking, a year's worth of refinement from inside and from knowledge that you, we then have the win. It's like I used to live on, live on uh, a boat in in Holland when I was cruising around backpacking. I spent about six months living on an old boat. And um, the I still remember the one thing he learned. He, uh, he told me, the old bloke, was myself as first mate and the skipper used to take guests out on this 200-year-old sailing boat. And he was just like, just remember... You build your first boat for your enemy, your second boat for your friend, and you keep the third boat. <laughs> I just I see that very clearly in a lot of this stuff. Because you just learn so much on the way that you can only learn by doing and being in the middle of it, you know. So it's like, you know, it's, if someone sort of came to me and said, cool, I've got a great idea for a non-alc product and it's new and different, I'd probably roll out our NPD board that's got it and 17 variants of it and, you know, because that's where we live. We spend a big chunk of our time making sure we know exactly which non-alc is next, which one we're going to launch. We've got a three-year pipeline showing exactly. Yeah. So it's it sort of, it's, yeah, my, my view is if you are going to start something, don't get too caught up on the first one. Like just move, move fast and learn. And, and there's no greater learning from when you've got a product in market or where, where you're actually doing it. I love that. Can you talk to us about branding and the importance of that? Like, looking at some of your stuff i mean we're going through the cereal and i'm going that's popping you know i'm buying i'm buying that at the supermarket don't worry about that can you tell us the importance of that and um just how it might have changed over time i think when you don't have much um yeah so i see you see the big companies that have certain branding and like you know you go through the design process and everyone always will always tell you every designer always say don't put the functional things first doesn't look good that doesn't look good, but what sells, you know? And and then but then then I'll, I'll show you all these examples of why, you know, best in class doesn't have it. But that best in class also has a five million dollar marketing and launch budget where they can put billboards up explaining exactly what it is, you know. And so I've always sat there and thought, right, well, our very first iteration is going to have the functional straight bang on the front because when when people are walking past and they don't know your brand. Your best advertising is when it's sitting there on the shelf. So I walk past and like you've, you've got a few games that I think you need to like. I'll talk branding from two different perspectives, actually. I'll talk about it for what's going to get your product trialed, and then I'll talk about it about creating brand love as a secondary piece. Because when you don't have much budget and you're trying to do lots of things, it's no use really even worrying about the second part if you can't get the first part right where people are picking it up off the shelf. Like you're fucked anyway if they're not doing that, regardless of how much brand love you've created. So I think the first thing is. Get something that just really catches people where instantly they know what it's going to be and and they just look at it and just go, yep, I know that's 50% less sugar fruit loops. That makes sense to me, you know, and so just like, cool, grab, thank you. And then, you know, for us, what we'll then do is when we do one of those quite quite clear or like with our non-ounce, it had to be so clearly looking like an alcoholic beverage that people were never in question of what it actually is. So margarita, right, no problems. You know what that is. And you know, the, the, even the design aesthetic of it needs to be one where, you know, if someone held it in their hand and say, what is that? They said, they'd say that's an alcoholic RTD, right? Because that's, you know, you've got to get things so clear in your product that there's no ambiguity to what it is. And this is, this is my view. There's lots of people who have differing views on this, but this is sort of my view on that because 
you can always then as and even as I talk about this, I realise I'm talking about this from a view of someone who throws a lot of shit at the wall to see what sticks sometimes. So you need to then give it the most chance to see if the functional benefit you're putting forward really has legs. Take our cereal. And it's there, 50% less sugar, great, we grab it. Now over the next few years, where that 50% less sugar will come down and the No Nasty Project icon will come much, much bigger. But that will happen year on year on year as we transition it away from being functionally led to brand led. Because then we'll move into that next step of how do we, now that we've proven that the product works, people want it, we then, what takes the brand to the next level is brand love, socials, you know, people loving you, people talking about you and all that stuff. But often when you get tried at first, it's it's when they're walking past and, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's got, it's got to be a billboard on, on, on the shelf. So it gives it the best chance of being grabbed. And I think that's sort of, we see it from that point of view. Um, when you know, when we know, for example, that, you know, let's say with our non-alks, we, we, you know, we understand that they've hit, we understand that, you know, the people are really loving them and all that stuff. We, we will then look to do all the standard brand work that I think lots of larger companies start with at the beginning. So we'll go get, you know, do more research because there's almost like in its own little P&L, it can fund itself now to really optimise it and protect its space and take it to the next level and all that stuff. But you can't afford to do that every time you do a new product. Like you have to have a bit of gut to, you've got to have a bit of a, you know, some of the basic rules to make it make it stand out, make it grab, make it pop, and then, you know, give it the best possible chance to take to that next stage of maturity. What about you personally, like getting out the uh, importance of PR and building a personal brand? Like uh, for what you've done, how how important has it been and is it something that you've always felt comfortable doing? Absolutely not. I've been dragged kicking and screaming to do PR basically the whole my whole career. Every, every time we get any PR, I try and push it towards other stuff. And the first thing I do is try and put me straight forward in the front of it. And I really find it hard, I must say. Like I just, I really cower away from it. I find it, I get a tight chest even thinking about it, I must say. Um, You've got so much knowledge though, Dave. You know what I mean? You're spitting these, you're spitting wisdom. I feel like your head's just opening up and I'm just absorbing it, you know? It's that brain juice. Yeah. It's sort of, I think it's one of those ones I'm getting... I'm very comfortable talking about stuff like this because I love it. I'm super passionate about, um, yeah, we've made so many mistakes. So it sounds like I've got a lot of wisdom. I've just made a lot of mistakes. like, And so I've just patterned what hasn't worked and try and do less of that and pattern what is working and try and do more of that, all of which in trying to de-risk doing your whole nutting because you've spent too much on one thing. And that's basically where a lot of that comes from. So I'm really comfortable talking about lots of that stuff. I think, but I think PR... I'll talk about what I should do, not what I do do, maybe. <laughs> because it, it is the, if you're passionate about something, if you've got a good story and you just, you know, and it, I think it comes down to that passion side. If you're passionate about what you do and you have everyone always telling you that, geez, you're so passionate about what you do, then I think PR, personal PR with you at the front of the brand is the best money you can spend because it's relatable. People want to be a part of it. People get like people get infected by your, like if you're just actually passionate about it, they want to be a part of it. Everyone wants to be a part of something positive and, and, and interesting and they want to support that. So I think, you know, you're naturally not very good at it and don't, and, and don't come across as very passionate. Yeah, you should probably just put some money into some digital ads. Um, I, I, I think it, it really depends on, I think, on the person. Um, but I think that sort of, you know, and it can also be very hit and miss. Like, you know, you can spend a fair bit of money on trying to get a campaign and if it doesn't take, it doesn't take and you've just waxed a whole heap of money. But actually, if I'm taught, let me, I'll talk, I'll, every time we've had a really good PR outcome is where we've been first at something. 
So now, now I'm adding to my little my own patterning. Now I think if you're not if you don't have clear air between you and the next product, I'm talking about real clear air, and this is something I was talking to the team about last week about how you need to put your ego away when you're figuring out if there's actual clear air between you and a competitor because you can't tell yourself. You always think your kid's pretty, so you actually got to figure out whether your kid's ugly or not. So you got to go ask other people, and so you know, and you got to ask a really hard question. You sit there and go like, "Here's my product, and here's a shelf." Can you actually tell the difference between these? And half the time people are like, uh, yeah, can you just explain it to me though? And if you get that response, then no, nah, there's not clear air. Like it's got to be like a non-alcoholic GNT versus an alcoholic GNT or like a or a Zuba duper versus a sugar-free, all natural sugar-free. Like there's there's daylight between these things. And if there's and and that daylight also between how, how cluttered the competitive space is. So if you're not first in there and there's daylight then you're not going to get a good PR result out of it because it's just not that interesting. And so I think from that point of view, it's worth throwing that lens over things about where you put your initial money, I think. And But you can build these things up anyway. Like you can see, you can test out through, even if you're doing some some work with some influencers to try your product and stuff, if you're not getting a good response from them, because, you know, because it's it's a pool and it's, it's generally seen as a, a as a, as a marketing tool, but it's also a really good testing tool. Like if most if people aren't really that interested in trying your product that you're going out with to try and get influencers, then you, know, you probably need to work on your product or work on your or because they're generally the ones who want to jump on anything that's new and different. And if they're not, then you're not communicating it well enough, or the product doesn't look good enough, or it tastes like shit, or something like that. So it's a, I guess where I'm going with all of these, it's just this cycle of learning. It's this constant loop of being like the moment you get set in the fact that this is my product and it's in a brown case it's in a brown cup with a black lid and it's got coffee in it the moment that's what you're wedded to i think you're a bit fucked i think you need to have massively loose hands with constantly when you're working through your product to like be ready to be like just change it completely because you're not getting the feedback that you think you're getting but people get pretty caught into the fact that why don't people why can't people see why this is great as opposed to this probably isn't great what about you personally choosing? You mentioned you got three years of pipeline of new products. Um, a brand that I think is pretty iconic is Zuper Duper, right? Mm, I think definitely. going back as long as I can remember having icy poles. <laughs> funny, the funny thing is, Locke's got an interesting habit mm. with all things icy poles in that in that shape. Is he ha- he I doesn't throw them? <laughs> he doesn't have them by ones. He anytime he gets them, he gets them by twos, and that doesn't mean he's having just two at a time. Like, how many you reckon you've had in a day? What would you? Be- oh, I've had packs in a day. Yeah, a pack. Yeah, easy, bro. A hot day, bro. I'm just sweating. I'm just getting it on. So, in what are you trying of, to say? What's the story? I'm saying, in, a, in terms of a sugar, <laughs> less sugar alternative, I feel like you couldn't have a better use case than trying to cut down some. <laughs> sugar runs through his veins. Yeah, it's not good. It's not what, good. <laughs> what are some of the thoughts you go on in terms of like choosing products here to launch in Australia that you categories you want to take on? Yeah, um, I think that the. the since we were quite early into the lower sugar movement, like when I first, I still remember going back five years ago and I, I was walking the, the supermarket shelves and I, I basically could see probably 12 different categories that needed a lower sugar option. And I remember looking at it all, just going, how am I going to take all of this on in one go? And in the end, like, so we ended up having about 50 different products developed in one year. So we had everything from, you know, and, and this is all the way through to having a, a retail, a, an actual, you know, designs done, um, actual sort of, you know, discussions with a manufacturer with costing and all that stuff. We had like 
everything ranging from chocolate milk through to ice cream through to actual lollies, you name it. It was a really big year, but, you know, it's sort of often it comes down to where the opportunity is from a, from a manufacturing point of view because sometimes, you know, if I if I look at some of the categories, it's really hard to get them made in Australia. We want to be Australian made with all that we could, but there just isn't the capability in Australia or there is, but you just... You're just never going to do the volumes that justify, you know, a manufacturer getting out of bed. Like we've been laughed at many times, um, yeah, because we're just sort of like, oh, what volumes? It's like this. <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, yeah, come back in a couple of years, you know, and you, you get a lot of that type of stuff happening. But for us, like, you know, I think, you know, I start out with where's the need. So where is there a category which is full of sugar that doesn't have a better alternative yet? And that's the, that's your starting point. And then you start filtering down of like who's got the largest market share there. Like, you know, is there sort of someone who's got absolutely dominating, therefore sort of, you know, therefore they're looking for someone to take it. You know, the consumers are looking for, for another option or is it one of those ones where there's 12 brands each with with 7% market share and then you look, you know, you're not going to get much clear air there because it's just pretty fragmented. So it's probably another layer that you'd put on that. And then it comes down to what's the price point because there are some things where consumers are just so... You know, let's take something like jelly. Like, you know, people are used to buying it for a dollar fifty a pack. Is there room for us to to do something under that and do people care enough about that? Probably not. And so and that's probably something we've looked at. <laughs> and so we're just like and then you look at that and, and and then it comes down to commercials of it. Like, can you actually pull it off or is it too risky? And you just you just filter it down through these elements. So there's a fair bit of filtering that happens, but generally you sort of but then there's other ones where, like with icy poles, where I just I went through that and there was no manufacturing in Australia. So I ended up going overseas and buying a machine and almost went broke for it. But I just bought a machine and started up a manufacturing plant here. And, and no, I don't have any technical experience whatsoever. So I flew over to Europe to buy a machine and it's been the bane of it. Like it's been very, I've learned a lot, I guess, is, is a way to put it. But it's also, it, it allowed us to take on a market that otherwise we couldn't have taken on. And so that was a, you know, that was a real kind of, that was a, a real balls on the line, house on the line moment, that one. Fuck me. Did you put it in the house or did you find a little warehouse? Not in the no, back found, room, is it? You just pumping out icy poles? Yeah, no, I found a group who was going to run it, but I still remember there was a time where we didn't have – it wasn't the time frame to get it on to, – to be able to get the machine in and make the product to get it on the shelf for the retailer – was too short where I didn't have confirmed ranging. So I was ringing him. It's like, you know, can you confirm this? Otherwise I can't get this machine in and get to the shelf. And they're like, no, we can't let you know. And so I just had to back myself in on the fact that the market's big enough. I've done enough research from people who are interested in it and all that stuff that, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to buy this machine. I still remember speaking to them saying, well, hopefully you range it because I've bought the machine already. <laughs> I remember speaking to them. It was like, it's done now. So fingers crossed mate you know and i still remember like thankfully we you know we we did well with that and it was like the right product at the right time but i think that's the other side where sometimes you just need to back yourself in like at that stage i was single didn't you know there was no there was no real loss like you know if i look back my worst case scenario at that point in in my journey was going back and getting a job and earning triple the salary i was currently pulling from my business like it's, it's not you know and, and 
sometimes downside risk is so top of mind because the ego sits there and goes, but what if I go on it? Well, who cares? It's a scar that helps you go better next time. And, you know, history is littered with people whose second, third attempts are the one that made it, but it's the ego that makes you sit there and go, no, nah, I don't want to be the guy who who screwed up. And that was very much forefront of my mind was understanding and eyeballing worst case scenario because if you can if you can do that and get comfortable with it, you're genuinely free and, and you're never really that trapped with this stuff it's only money you can make it again so you know it, it depends on what you're wanting to achieve that was a real big one for us that's probably a good segue a question we ask all our guests is around a bit a bit of a mental health question what do you do to get some energy back in your life oh that's a tough one uh it's a struggle but i'm generally a pretty high energy guy i've always had a lot of energy always been able to sort of I'd always sat there and thought i can you know outwork out train anyone in my that was sort of in my head was always i tend to go pretty hard on anything I do. But I'd noticed that one of my close friends actually had a, a had a breakdown just, you know, he and it was someone who we speak to. We, we used to bounce around a lot about, you know, entrepreneurship work and stuff. And, and it was a real eye-opener actually about shit, we're, we're fallible. So I used to take those conversations and just be like, yeah, you know, even though I could start feeling my tight, my chest tighten up much more than it used to a few years ago and stuff and all these other things, I, I used to think I was invincible, but now I realise that I'm not. So I have sort of, I took up surfing last year to have an outlet. Um, so I started, uh, what, on my, on my 40th birthday, I uh, still remember all my mates booked a trip to the Maldives. They've always been doing it. They always surfing trips and i'm sick of messing out so in march last year like fuck it i booked my trip i'd never surfed before and stood up on a board and and so i just intently got into surfing last year went to urban surf every week got a lesson just started shit started on a big nine foot six foamy in the, in the white water and got myself through to october i could surf and then i went to the maldives caught a few cracking waves it was great and, and like and i felt that was something away from family which I love dearly, but something that was mine, something away from work, but also something that was physically and mentally incredibly stimulating. So like instead of me flicking around on Facebook at night when I was knackered, I was looking at how to surf videos. I was looking at, you know, it just it was a it was an outlet that for someone like myself who kind of needs to be fully engaged by something, it it, it was a real great outlet for that. And even to the point where like, my shoulders are a bit screwed from rugby, so I started actually working on them as opposed to leaving them for the last 15 years, which is because I didn't want yeah, – I knew that I was – it was great to have a layer over the top that was both physical, mental, and in some way spiritual because you're out in the water and it's just amazing. You know, you've got a sunrise coming up and you're sitting there going, great, I'm in this spot. And so that's been something that's been a real important thing for me, I think. Um, and then I've just started meditating again in the morning, trying to get my mornings back because I've been noticing – that you know well i took social media off my phone for a starter which you know that sort of except the marketplace i'm addicted to marketplace i love a bargain so it's really hard to sort of you're still asking for discounts every time every time (laughs) the real balance though is you lose a lot of stuff because you ask for a discount on something that's already a price and some other guy who knows a real price just buys it straight away so you've got to really temper the, the discount asking when you're buying secondhand Shake down the Sharons, mate. Fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> trying to get that back in the morning to do at least 10 minutes in the morning just to reset reset the brain, reset. Because I just realised that it, for me, a big trigger is my chest gets tight. I get a real tight chest when I'm starting to start to feel anxious and stuff. And it's a real physical reaction, something I've spent a lot of time trying to understand. So in the morning when I do that, I can just gauge you know, if my chest is super tight and I'm just like, oh, probably not feeling that great, I'll spend a bit more time figuring out why, what can I do to sort of, you know, instead of probably a few years ago, I just would have pushed. 
And we were just like, nah, ignored it, pushed it away, just barreled through, stop being a pussy, you're fine, boom, keep going. Whereas now I realise that the the brittleness of that approach is is um, too dangerous because, you know, you can't repair yourself. Well, you can repair yourself, but, you know, you go over the edge, you, you know, you have a bit of a bit of a breakdown and it, it's, it's, you know, it sets you a long way back and it's hard to figure out when that's coming. So it's something that's quite top of mind, actually. And, and my partner and I talk about it a lot. Um, she's, very, she's really helpful in trying to manage that in me because, of, as I said before, that sort of feeling of invincibility, you've kind of got it until you don't. And so she helps to sort of, she knows that's what I'm like. So she helps to manage it. She keeps a bit of a pulse on my how I'm feeling. If I come home and crack a beer the moment I walk in the door, she's like, are you okay? Because <laughs> I don't normally do that. So the little things like that are a really important sign to try and stay on top of it. But it's hard, you know, because it's just the 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 other side of it is do less, try and be less ambitious. Be, you know, and you look at all of those and go, no, that's not an option. But then you go, oh, maybe it is. So I don't know. I really I struggle with it. I struggle with balancing those things. What What about juggling new dad life too? That one's hard. <laughs> But it's also it's much easier though because you've got this little thing looking up at you growing that like you know I still remember the she, she stopped doing something that she used to do as a little kid and I realized sorry when she was a baby and it was something as little like a little noise she used to make that we used to love hearing and when that when she stopped doing that it, it dawned on me that she will never do that again that's it that's gone forever and and that really dawned on me like fuck you got to stay close to these things and and all those cliches oh they're growing up so fast it's happening all before your eyes all these type of things they're all cliches that just generally cliches bounce right off me because i'm used to hearing my mum just you know just constantly they would be disciplined tidy your room blah 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 like, <laughs> and, and you, you tend to ignore them but now i've really started thinking about them particularly with my daughter because i'm just like oh shit so I try and spend time with her in the morning. Every morning, I'll, I'll be the one to wake her up so I can sort of, you know, give her a bit of a cuddle and stuff. And I try and be home for, uh, well, I am home for um, for dinner and bed because I just, they're two things I can control. And if I'm not controlling those, I'll be really disappointed later on in life. And I can, you know, I can work around all of that. And so generally, it's what it's made me do. And that's actually a really interesting question. The books that I've been reading recently or what I've trying to be being, getting better at is actually effectiveness stuff. How do I get more out of my time at work instead of farting around? Because I realise that, you know, every half an hour I fart around at work is half an hour I could be spending with my daughter. So it's sort of I've started trying to be far more effective. And the one thing that's changed actually is the meetings that we hold. So I'm far more brutal on meetings in our business now. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Feels like uh, it's a common theme, like getting time, like being effective with your time once you sort of got so much going on. Like Phil, Adam Jacobs is like filling in the cracks on you with yeah, his calendar yeah. start and start with like the good that. stuff and then fill out everything else usually fills around it. Like with work, yeah. so it's like block yeah. out the things that you really want to do. So if you want to take up surfing, I'm sure that you said you made sure that there Spend was time, time in your door. diary first. Yeah, going, yeah. I'm going surfing, I'm taking up surfing. I'm at Urban Surf on Wednesdays mornings. You know what I mean? That's where That's I am. Exactly right. And I locked it in the diary and I put all my catch up meetings in the car on the way out and on the way back. So I had half an hour blocked out for phone calls that I have from the team on the way out and on the way back. So it was only actually an hour and 15 minutes out of my day an hour to sort of you know and and little things like that if you you prioritize it you can get it done right and that sort of it it comes down to what are you prioritizing at the moment that sort of you go through waves though sometimes you got to buckle down and sacrifice all the other stuff to to get over a hump but i think 
even as I talk through, the, I, I learn so much from these types of chats about myself, actually, which is interesting. But what I'm what I realize is like you know, as long as those getting over the humps aren't your normal, because for someone like myself, I make that my normal. I try and just put another hump in there, so I'm always climbing. But you sort of get over a hump and be a bit true to yourself. Like, cool, that's actually where I wanted to get to. Don't just add another hump on there that you're always trying to climb. That sort of probably makes it a bit more realistic. Oh, it's still pretty early in the year. What's on for the rest of these this year? Yes, it's, it is early in the year, but it's, it's slipping away, isn't it? Um, just gotten back from the US, so we're really having a look at our international expansion side of things, which is uh, which will be interesting. Like it's sort of more learning and stuff over there. But for us, it's we had a big period of growth last year, and we're just digesting a lot of that and putting in sort of. I think we're in a position where our systems and processes tend to lack our growth and ambition, and I, I think that's sort of a. Um, you know, we're putting in a few systems now. We're doing a lot of the unsexy stuff in the next six months to make sure we're we're ramped for another big chunk of growth next year. Um, and I think it's sort of it's one thing I'd say to just anyone out there: do the unsexy stuff before you grow, because it just it's so bloody hard once you're embedded, once you you don't have good systems in place before you, you know, then yeah, yeah. There's no. It's pretty hard doing it afterwards because you're used to being lazy, and you've got to do work on on top of it. So that's a big a big thing for us is is doing a lot of that stuff, the unsexy stuff, because growth comes naturally to us. We're, we're we're a team of hunters here. I've, I've built a team here who just in this. If they're not out doing new stuff, driving new growth, all that stuff, then you know it's that that's just naturally what they do. What we probably don't naturally do is some of the more um system stuff and so therefore you got to put a lot more effort into that but what i've noticed is if you keep the team still happy and hungry you can still put in these systems and still grow at the same time because naturally they want to do what they want to do so you just sort of put a layer in and just, it takes a lot of work and effort but that's a, a lot of that's us this year which is sort of you know i, I kind of call it we're going from um from we're going from shorts to wearing long pants this year <laughs> And and people too, you know, like scaling and making sure, you know, like at the start, it's a lot different with a smaller team. You can control that. And, but as, as the team grows and scales, it's, you know, you get more people. Obviously there's more different things that you have to set up and put in place. Like you do this stuff for a living, eh? Well, going there. Going to the scale part. That's yeah. what he's talking about doing that. Yeah. So it's like, there's the stuff that's going to help when you can't be in the same room. You're taking less meetings to make sure that people are aligned on the direction or aligned on the goals and the objectives we're trying to do you need that stuff as you scale not whereas like the go fast stuff doesn't happen as much because you don't you can't disperse the right information without it the right information i just never thought i'd find information such a sexy term but the right information and single source of the truth really gets me off right now (laughs) (laughs) well dave mate this has been an unreal chat excited to get you down to bell's beach get you on the surfboard down here and uh you can have a surf off. Who's wearing the um gold jacket? Who's wearing I think the, I'll be, I might be jacket on Saturday. The yellow leaders jersey. The yellow leaders jersey. Who's wearing that? He rates himself, Dave. He rates himself. Don't worry, I'll be out oh, very good. I'm happy to push you on the whitewash. Don't worry, I'm shit. So yeah, I'll just I'll just watch you in awe. That's fine. <laughs> I'll be in the kitty section just watching it with my rashy on. I reckon. <laughs> Big, bad David Andrew could be one of the most handsome men we've had on the podcast. I couldn't stop staring into his eyes. He was, and I can't believe he did the. I'm sure when he did the pant business, when he ripped them off and had the undies and stuff, he would have been one of the people in just loving himself, sick in the undies. Magic Mike vibes, you reckon? Oh, 100%. I reckon he would have even got a fake tan for that. Besides in. being a good looking bloke, he's got some ripping stories, doesn't he? Oh, 100%. I just think, like, this is, these are the type of episodes why I 
love doing the pod. You know, I feel like go back before the pod started, the type of content that I was searching for to learn and absorb and like actually hear stories of people who have been there, done that and the, sh- the shit they've had to go on through to get there along the way. And for, for us, a couple of Aussies, like those stories, they weren't, yeah, like we were having to strive for like, all right, I'm listening to people in America and other stuff do that. But if you come to the Funny Business Podcast and we've got 250 episodes of just pure gold, yeah. there's no doubt in my mind that this is the most valuable business podcast in Australia by a fucking country mile. And I don't give a fuck <laughs> if you think other podcasts are better. And I don't, because I honestly don't care. <laughs> if we put out way more content with content like this, I just think, hey, Maybe we're not Dave and Andrew today, but this pod is banging. <laughs> hey, we'll see you uh, next time we see you, whatever. Because we put out content all the time. <laughs>